The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 13. We're getting to the end of this uh, wonderful text. We'll start reading at verse 8. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, notice in the NAS, there are gifts of is in italics. So, but if there's prophecies, they will be done away with. Uh, if there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, they used to speak like a child, reason, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a, in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So uh, the last time we were together, so last week, we looked at verse 7, that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so as that, uh, really that wonderful fourfold statement of uh, the present, future, future, then present, as, as Paul writes that magnificent statement, it really leads quite nicely into that first Line in verse 8, love never fails. Now, as we've noted throughout our study in 1 Corinthians 13, we always have to keep in mind the context of 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, There's great value in looking at 1 Corinthians 13 by itself. It's beautiful, it's powerful, you know, all of those things. But what Paul is doing is he is contrasting love with the gifts. He is demonstrating that that the gifts are to be used in love. And this, of course, was not the, the Corinthians' style, if you will. The Corinthians loved the gifts that were uh, that were visible. They loved the gifts that 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 put them on display. Paul's argument is that that's not loving, right? And of course, their favorite gift was what? It was tongues. It, 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 tongues was like that was the gift that just basically they could use and just say, "Hey, look at me! Look how spiritual." I am. I speak with the tongues of angels. I have the language of heaven. I am super spiritual. I am extraordinary. And Paul actually puts the gifts in proper perspective in chapter 12. And of course, his whole purpose in 1 Corinthians 12 is, is not to give us a spiritual gift inventory by which you can test yourself and see 
which gifts you have. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is, is that there is, there is one spirit that gives the diversity of gifts. And there is one God who is working through the, the variety of ministries that have been given. And there is one God who is, who is bringing about the effects and the results of the gifts and the ministries that he gives. And so in a sense, really, the emphasis is, is on a diversity of gifts that is undergirded by a unity of the Spirit. And that unity of the spirit should, should undermine the idea of pride in the exhibition of the more visible gifts. Okay. As I've noted before, nobody brags, I've got the gift of helps. It's awesome. Look at me. Nobody does that. But the ostentatious gift of tongues is, hey, Look at me. And so Paul has been, as he transitions from chapter 12, he's giving us, uh, as it were, sort of the, the modus operandi of the gifts. Gifts should be empowered, motivated by love. And this is what love looks like. So we get to this final paragraph. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to make the, a contrast again. And he's going to contrast love and the gifts. But here what he's going to do in particular is he's going to contrast the permanence of love against the transient temporary nature of the gifts. Okay? In other words, it's, it's love that is the greatest. It's love that abides. It's love that never fails. It's love... And, and so that's the contrast. So that first line in, in verse 8, it's really wonderful, right? Love never fails. This is the concluding principle, the, uh, as it were, sort of the natural outcome of 13.7. And there are a lot of ways to translate this pretty simple phrase. But I would say that there's, there's an immediate context, right? So love never fails, okay? Prophecies, what? done away. Tongues cease. Knowledge, we'll talk about these in, in detail in a minute, done away. Love never fails. So the immediate context is on the fact that love never, um, love never ends. Okay? In fact, he's going to say something very similar at the end when he says in verse 13, uh, faith, hope, love, abide these three. The greatest of these is love. Love abides, right? So the, the, the phrase, love never ends, captures Paul's sentiment nicely. And there is, there's really, there's something wonderfully powerful about the statement itself. I want you to think about this. Um, love never fails, right? Love endures, in fact, you could say love tenaciously, perseveringly acts for the good of others, right? Love is, is tough in the sense that, that love is durable. Real love that comes from God the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, 
is a love that doesn't break down or fall apart under pressure. It doesn't collapse. It doesn't disintegrate. In fact, uh, one, one possible translation, I don't think it's the best because of the context, but the idea is, is love never collapses, well, there's a sense in which that's absolutely true. So, so spirit-empowered love is durable now and lasts forever. Really is a wonderful thing. That's in direct contrast, by the way, to the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts by nature are temporary. And so here's what the Corinthians had done. The Corinthians basically had reversed the order of things by prioritizing the gifts over love. They they had turned everything upside down. They turned it on its head. And so now what Paul's going to do is Paul is going to pick three gifts, uh, the three that they thought were the greatest, and he's going to demonstrate they're temporary. So the first thing he says, and this would be more of a literal Translation, he says, but whether prophecies, they shall be done away with. Okay? So prophecies, by the way, we're going to get to 1 Corinthians 14 um, pretty shortly where Paul will have a prolonged treatment of tongues and prophecy. All right, that's what everybody's interested in, right? Tongues and prophecy. And everybody wants to talk about tongues and, you know, do do people still speak in tongues? Everybody wants to talk about prophecy. These are the big things. But notice Paul's priority. He wants to focus on what's going to last forever. So the fact is, is that prophecy, as amazing as it may be or may have been, I won't tip my hand exactly yet, the the idea of spirit-empowered words, Spirit-empowered exhortation, supernatural insight, uh, whatever the exact nature of prophecy is or was, it's going to be brought to an end. In fact, the word that Paul uses for brought to an end is the idea of, of, of done away with. So let's just assume for a moment that what Paul has in mind when he talks about prophecy is, uh, is nothing more than, than preaching, all right? And I think there's more to it than that, but let's just assume that, that that's the bare minimum of what he means. There's coming a day when I will gloriously be out of a job, okay? And Jason, too. And Charlie, we won't need to preach anymore. It'll be done away with. What we do now is temporary. It's a temporary measure given to the church, right? Then he says, tongues shall cease. And of course, by the way, this this probably freaked him out a little bit because what did, uh, what, what did some of them think they were doing? Remember, as we've talked about tongues in, in 1 Corinthians 12, to a degree, we, we talked about the, uh, the possible Corinthian perspective that, 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 that they thought that, that tongues could have been angelic language, right? Which 
how were they speaking in the language of angels, or if you will, the language of heaven? And the answer, of course, is is that they were they were so super spiritualized that they were already, as it were, a part of the age to come. Their feet didn't even touch the ground. They they were so much a part of heaven. They were so much a part of the age to come. They were so super spiritualized that their that their that their gift of tongues proved it. Paul says, tongues will cease, which may lead me to the conclusion that tongues are not the gift of heaven, unless, of course, we are all mute when we get to heaven, all right? So one commentator, Anthony Thistleton, he says this, this is great. He says, this must surely call into question the notion that tongues are either a language of heaven or patterned after an exalted way of intimacy with God. If this were so, why would they cease at the eschaton, right? So here's Paul, and he says, this gift that you think is is the greatest thing ever, it's going to cease. And then he says, and knowledge, where there is knowledge, now, he's not talking about understanding or knowing God or knowing God's truth, but rather he's talking about the spiritual gift of knowledge that he's already mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, which was probably, of course, as I mentioned, we don't really have a whole lot of information on gift of knowledge, uh, word of knowledge, or uh, word of wisdom. We don't know exactly, precisely what Paul's, because that's the only place where he mentions it. But here, the idea would be some sort of a revelatory gift like he's already mentioned in 13.2, if I had all knowledge to know all mysteries, right? And so here is this supernatural gift of prophecy and this supernatural gift of tongues and this supernatural gift of knowledge. And Paul says, there's coming a day when they're going to be all done away with. God's going to bring them to a screeching halt, as it were. Now, um, there's a lot of things we could say because sometimes people point out that uh, tongue shall cease is different than prophecy shall be done away and knowledge shall be done away. Uh, and so the idea is somehow that tongues disappear by themselves. That's sort of uh, exegetical nonsense, and we won't waste any time proving that it's exegetical nonsense. So we get to this conclusion after uh, verse 8. And uh, uh, Dave Garland, who's a wonderful commentator on Corinthians, says said that the gifts, this is really a terrific statement, the gifts have a built-in obsolescence, right? They have a built-in obsolescence. That is, that is God created them and gave them to the church with, with a, a shelf life that was going to expire. He then says... The verb makes clear that these gifts do not flow into something new, like, I love this imagery, like a ramp feeding onto a superhighway. They reach a dead end. On the day of the Lord, their assignment will be finished and they will be scrapped as functionless. The implication is that these gifts and others 
are not to be understood as either the indispensable criteria of the Christian life or its goal. You understand, if gifts are by nature temporary and God has a built-in obsolescence, then the gifts can't be the ultimate goal of the Christian life. It can't be what you live for. There's stuff that's more important. And so, there's coming a day when they'll be rendered unnecessary. And so then the question is why? Then So Paul actually explains this so wonderfully in verses 9 and 10. This is why the gifts are temporary, is because they're imperfect and the perfect is coming. All right, so verse 9, for we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the in part will be done away. And so here's Paul's rationale for saying, so the gifts are temporary. They serve a temporary function. And here it is, is that right now, what we know about God is is actually partial. But there's coming a day, and so by the way, those gifts are directly connected to the in-partness of what we know. There's coming a day where the partial, the imperfect, if you will, is going to give way to the perfect. So right now, there's, uh, there's a quality to our understanding and our knowledge of God and his word that is, that is partial. Here's one thing that's absolutely true about everybody in this room. We're all sinners. Does that affect your ability to know God and understand his truth? The answer is yes. Uh, here's another fact about everybody in this, in this room is we're all finite. Right? Here's, here's, here's another corollary truth, and that is that we are all limited. Okay? So... Whoever your favorite Bible teacher is in the whole wide world, guess what? They only know in part. Okay? It's like, here's a surprise. Like, John MacArthur only knows in part. <laughs> it's amazing. It almost sounds blasphemous, but it's not. He only knows in part. Why? Because that's the nature of the age in which we live. Right? So there's a quality to our knowledge and understanding of God that is only partial. So here's, here's the way that we should think about it. So what do we know that is true about God? Well, what we know that is true about God is what God has revealed in his word. What is God revealed in his word? Well, he, here it is. He's revealed the tip of the tip of the iceberg. So if, if the revelation of God is the tip of the tip of the iceberg, and then you have this massive below the waterline uh, uh, iceberg that just goes down and spreads out and goes way beyond anything we could ever imagine, and that's the knowledge of God, and God reveals himself to us in the tip of the tip. Now, by the way, in revealing the tip of the tip, it is true and it is accurate revelation. Okay, it's not like he reveals the tip of the tree and actually he's 
the tip of the iceberg. That's not the way it works. So it's accurate knowledge, it's true knowledge, but it's partial knowledge. There is no way for any of us to fully comprehend what God has revealed. And here's the reality. What God has revealed, he has revealed on a need-to-know basis. He's not revealed everything there is to know. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There is stuff that God has not revealed about himself. There is stuff that he's not revealed in his word. So here we have the tip of the tip. So now you got the tip of the tip. It's accurate. It's true. It's what you need to know. Now, how much can we as sinful, finite, limited creatures know about the tip of the tip? What we know about the tip of the tip is still partial. All right? Now that shouldn't discourage you, that should overwhelm you with a wonderful sense of the majesty of God, the transcendence of God. The amazing thing is that knowing in part can be knowing God intimately, knowing God truly, knowing God genuinely as he is, but only understanding in part. On that day, we will all be absolutely blown away. When, 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 I'm kind of jumping ahead, but when we see face to face, there is absolutely no way to even anticipate what that is going to be like. And so Paul says, so we know in part, partial knowledge of God and his truth, and we prophesy in part, so the quality of prophetic revelation and declaration is partial, right? Now, by the way, does this, uh, does this undermine our confidence in the sufficiency of God's word? No, not at all. Because God gives his people the word that they need at any given point in redemptive history. So for us, the completed canon of Scripture, the 66 books, is the sufficient word of God for us. Everything that we need for life and godliness, we have in the, in, in the canon of Scripture. All right. So to say that we only know in part and only prophesy in part does not do anything to undermine the sufficiency of the word. But what it does do is it reminds us that our knowledge is fragmentary and imperfect, this side of heaven. Okay. Then Paul says this, and this is magnificent. Verse 10, when the perfect, when the perfect comes the partial will be done away. So what's the partial? Knowledge and prophecy. What's the perfect? Oh, you talk about, you talk about starting some serious fights throughout the history of the church. What is the perfect? Don't you wish Paul would have had, uh, had word 
and actually just did, did footnotes for us. So the perfect, what I mean, you know, footnote 10, what I mean by the perfect is, right? So he's used the word perfect to mean, uh, to refer to people. He's used it in terms of the idea of maturity. But here, basically, there's three, uh, three ways that this has been uh, answered, and I think two of them are not true, and one of them is, and you can guess which one. The perfect is the completion of the canon of Scripture. So when the perfect comes, that is the completed canon, then the gifts go away. Okay, by the way, that view is usually connected with a very, very strong cessationist view of the gifts, all right? And the, the fact is, is that the argument that the perfect is somehow the canon of Scripture goes beyond anything that um, I, I think is reasonable because Paul would have had to know what the perfect was. And for Paul to make the perfect, the completion of the canon seems, seems just incredibly unlikely to me. The other idea is that the perfect is the maturity of the church. And so there's an appeal to verse 11, being a child, speaking as a child, thinking as a child, reasoning as a child, becoming a man. So the idea was based especially in terms of uh, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, that the church would, in a sense, mature and then outgrow these gifts, all right? I think that's possible, but I think that, I think that the clearest um, meaning is that the perfect is the state that is brought about by the return of Jesus, the eschaton, the consummation of the ages. And so when you look at this, um, to me, the third view that, that it's the state of the eschaton brought about by Jesus is, is really the only plausible view when you stop and think about verse 12. But then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. So the completion of the canon of the maturity of the church doesn't give us face-to-face knowledge. What gives us face-to-face knowledge? Seeing his face. And guess when that happens? That happens at the eschaton. That happens when Jesus returns. And so I think that very, I'm persuaded that that is the reasonable view here, that when the perfect comes, everything will be made complete, and then the imperfect gifts and their corresponding imperfect understanding will give way. I can't remember where I got this. Maybe I thought it up myself. Maybe I stole it from somebody. I can't remember. But to prophesy once the perfect comes would be like, would be like lighting a torch with the full light of the noonday sun blazing away. To have the gift of knowledge once the perfect comes would be like trying to describe a person or a place from a picture while everyone is actually in the place looking at the person. Now, this passage, I would say, uh, does not help 
either the cessationist or the continuationist view of the gifts. Okay? So we'll talk about this more when we get to 1 Corinthians 14. But you know what I mean by the cessationist view? That is that the, that the revelatory supernatural gifts of the Spirit, uh, namely prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues, that those gifts have ceased, thus cessation. And then continuation is that all of the gifts of the Spirit continue until the end. So I'm going to say that this passage doesn't actually help you one way or the other. And the reason it doesn't help you one way or the other is because it's not Paul's concern. By the way, it would be, it would be somewhat absurd for Paul living in the time when all of the gifts are in operation and he's anticipating the parousia, the return of the Lord, for him to talk about a time when the gifts would be done away with before the coming of Christ. You understand what I'm saying? So we come to the, we come to the texts and we have questions about the cessation or continuation of the gifts and we try to, in a sense, force Paul to answer our questions and he was never asking them to begin with. You understand? So, for instance, um, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an argument for, for a, um, let's say, a mild cessationism at a later point. But here's, here's the point that I'm making, is that that wasn't on Paul's radar. So you can't expect Paul to talk about it. To expect him to talk about it would like be expecting him to talk about things that happened much later in church history that he would have had unless he had unique prophetic insight. So here he's looking at the gifts are temporary. Christ is coming. When Christ comes, the temporary will give way to the perfect. That's the scheme. It's that simple. All right? And again, doesn't I don't think it says one way or the other about about the way the gifts continue to function later in church history. Paul then gives two illustrations. And the purpose of both of these illustrations is to, is to demonstrate the difference between the present and its imperfection and the future and its perfection. So verse 11, this is, of course, you know, I think this verse has been incredibly misused and abused over the years. But Paul says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Childhood wasn't just specifically the church in its early infancy. Childhood is the way that Paul is describing the age of the imperfect. In in other words, from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus, there there is a a, a childish like a childlikeness to the church. Why? Because it's the age of the partial. That's that's the correspondence to the illustration. So when he says, I, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. So you know when you're in kindergarten, do you know what your vocabulary is? If you're average, okay? 500 words. 
If you're a kindergartner, you have about 500-word vocabulary. Okay? Um, do you chide a, a five-year-old for not using, um, let's say, the term uh, infralapsarianism? They don't know that word, but that's okay because they're a child. As you grow, you get more vocabulary, at least most people do. You can always tell the people that were stunted in their vocabulary because they just use profanity. Profanity actually is just an expression of of a stunted mind that has no vocabulary. You You have to use bad words for commas because that's the only way you know how to do grammar. Just a theory. Anyway. Okay, so limited vocabulary. What about when I was a child, I thought as a child. Isn't, isn't, um, isn't watching children start to think about things absolutely fascinating? Right? It's absolutely fascinating. The way, that they, the way that their little minds start to put things together, right? And sometimes they put things together that are just like totally wrong, but, but absolutely hilarious, right? And, uh, you know, and, and, and then the way that they, that they take words, they, they don't really know what the words mean, but they use them to describe things that they don't know how to describe. And so, uh, you know, we had, uh, we had all three boys from Sunday, uh, afternoon, Sunday night until yesterday afternoon. And, uh, it's a, an incredible reminder to me as to why you have children when you're young. Okay. And, uh, we had a great time. It was a lot of fun, but we were wiped out. And I asked uh, Calvin at one point, um, they had forgotten socks. And I said, uh, do you want me just to run you back over to your house and maybe mommy can uh, give you guys some more socks? And he goes, no, that's okay. Mommy and daddy are still on a hot date. Okay. Well, no, they're not, but you don't even know what a hot date is. So... <laughs> Right, and you just smile, and it's cute, and it's and 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 that's there's there's a wonderful sense of of thinking like a child, having a vocabulary like a child, reasoning like a child. So you have these evaluations that kids make that are based on a limited knowledge. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong or immoral or even deficient about being a child if that's what you are, right? In other words, you don't expect anything out of a child other than what a child can, can do, the way a child can think, the way the child can reason, and the way the child can speak. And so, so here's, I, I think here's Paul's point. So in this, in this present age, we're, we are encumbered by, by these incredible limitations. And as marvelous as God's word is, the fact is, is that 
in this present age, we, we lack a completeness and a wholeness and our knowing is part of our childhood in knowing God. You know, what's interesting is that no matter how mature you are in the faith, when it comes right down to it, you're still a child. No matter how um, eloquent your prayers, you still speak like a child. No matter how many times you've read Edwards and Owen, you still reason like a child. This is, this is the age of childhood for the church. And then he says, when I became a man, I did away with the things of a child. By the way, did away is our same word for prophecy and knowledge. It'll be done away. So full maturity actually demands that we abandon the childish ways of, of childhood. All right? And so the gifts are a part of the childhood of the church. They're marked by the limitations of childhood. And when the perfect comes, when the fullness of our maturity in Christ comes, there will no longer be any need for the gifts of childhood in the shadowlands. That's the picture. That's the picture. Paul gives a second illustration. He says in verse 12, he says, But now we see in a mirror, NAS says dimly. I don't know why. What does the ESV say? Dimly. I don't know why. That's just poor. It's a poor choice, really. The, the word is the word from which we get enigma. Okay? And in fact, when the word is used in the Septuagint, it's used in the sense of um, sometimes in, in Proverbs and in the prophets, um, uh, a riddle. Okay. Now, Paul's not saying a riddle here, okay. But what he's saying is, by, by the way, and, and it's it dimly it, for some reason. I don't think dimly actually captures the idea. Okay. Now. What kind of mirrors did they have in Paul's day? Well, they had bronze mirrors that were highly polished, which actually were pretty good. Okay? It's not like you went into the carnival, the house of mirrors, and you looked at yourself and your face was really long or it was really fat or, or you know... Um, anything like that, it was, it was highly polished brass that gave an accurate reflection. But here's, here's the thing about what Paul's saying. When you're looking at an image in a mirror, you're looking at it 
indirectly. You're looking at a reflection of the image. You're not looking directly at the image. You're looking at the image as it's being mediated by the mirror. And so the contrast is with the indirect looking into a mirror compared to looking at somebody, how? Face to face. That's, that's the point of contrast. And so our experience of God and our understanding of his truth is like us looking, let's, let's change the imagery a little bit, into a photograph. Now, the photograph is an accurate depiction of what we want to know, but it is not directly the person, right? And so when Paul says this, he's saying that it's, um, that our knowledge is, is, is in a sense indirect. It is, it's, it's immediate. Now, when I say the word immediate, you know what you think. You think suddenly, right? When I say the word immediate compared to mediate, mediate means I see it through mediation. Immediate is without mediation. Okay? So there's coming a day when our knowledge of God will be immediate. Without the, without even the mediation of his word or even the mediation of, um, of, of, of revelation or prophecy because it'll be face to face. It will be immediate. Right now we got, we know God immediately. We know God through the way that he reveals himself through his word, through nature. We know God uh, reveals himself in these immediate ways. And we can know God and know God accurately. But there's coming a day when we will see differently. And so Calvin says this. He says, therefore, we must understand it in this way. That the knowledge of God which we now derive from his word, is undoubtedly reliable and true, and there's nothing muddled or unintelligible or dark about it. But when it is called obscure, it's in a relative way because it falls a long way short of that clear revelation to which we look forward when we shall see face to face. Then he says a little later, he says, for there is an open naked revelation of God in the word enough to meet our needs. And there is, there is nothing recondite about it. That is, there's nothing that's, that's beyond our ability to lay hold of as unbelievers imagine to keep us in a state of uncertainty. But how small a share this is of the vision toward which we reach out. Therefore, it is described as obscure only in comparison with the other. So we see in a mirror, in an enigma, if you will, we see obscurely, but now, uh, uh, now I know in part. And so, again, the knowledge of God, partial, indirect, through a bronze mirror. But then I shall know just as I have been known. When is the but then I shall know? It's when the perfect comes. 
And so here is this, here is this wonderful sense. And so here, by, by the way, when, when you know as you've been, as you've been known, that does not mean that you will have complete exhaustive knowledge of the infinite God. That will never come. <laughs> we just saw a Toy Story 4. So to infinity and beyond. You will never fully comprehend God. So what's Paul's point? Well, Paul, Paul's point is, is, is actually quite simple, and that is there's coming a day when we are going to know him in the same way that we've been fully known. That is face-to-face. God knows us immediately. God knows us as we really are. God knows us face-to-face. We still don't know God that way, but there's coming a day when we will know God in the way that he knows us. That should absolutely boggle our minds. Immediate, full, face to face. By the way, you ever read uh, in the Old Testament? You see these, these, uh, the, this language: face to face, mouth to mouth, eye to eye. Right? It means it means direct, immediate knowledge of somebody. There's coming a day when that's how we are going to know the living God. The old timers talked about this in terms of the beatific vision to see God as he is and thus to be like him. One day we'll see him face to face. Right now, Oh, how we got to thank God for our Bibles because right now, how do I know God? I know God because he's revealed himself to us in the pages of this book. And without this book, I could not know God. But there's coming a day. So I'm looking looking at, at pictures now. You never outgrow a child's picture book because you're a child and these are pictures. Child's picture book. It's a picture Bible. But there's coming a day when you won't need the pictures because you'll be in his presence. So when I was in college, I had this picture of Ariel. Some of you have seen it. It's this black and white picture. She's like super pretty in this picture. She's super pretty all the time, but she's like extraordinarily super pretty in this picture. Now, by the way, I have have two copies of it, and they're both in my study at home. But I would... When we were engaged, that, that picture would be right by my bed. 
And I'd talk to that picture. We didn't have cell phones. Ruined a generation. We wrote letters. We talked on the phone. We had to actually find a phone booth. And I look at that picture, I talk to that picture. When we got married, you would have thought I was an incredible idiot if I would have just kept talking to the picture. Right? I didn't need to talk to the picture anymore. Technically, I didn't even need to look at the picture anymore. Why? Because I had the person. I had the person. That's, that's what this is all about. And so Piper says this, he says, therefore the implication is that our union with God in the all-satisfying experience of his glory can never be complete, but must be increasing with intimacy and intensity forever and ever. So face-to-face knowledge of God, intimate knowledge of God that increases forever. The perfection of heaven is not static Nor do we see at once all there is to see, for the infinite cannot take in, for the finite cannot take in all of the infinite. Our destiny is not to become God. Therefore, there will always be a more finite creature to know and enjoy. There will always be for the finite creature more to enjoy and more to know of God. The ever-increasing pleasure in God will never come to an end. Some of you know exactly where this comes from. And this is what Paul's describing for us. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, This is the end of all the stories. And we can say most truly that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth had read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. When this age ends, when your life ends, just the end of the title page. Turn the page. It's the beginning of the beginning. Knowing God. And so, what I'll do is I'll save verse 13 for next week or the week after. But I want you to think, Paul's point is it during this this age that we live in, everything is partial. 
Nothing's complete. The gifts he's given us, the knowledge we have, our experience of God, it's all, it's all in part. But there's coming a day when the perfect will come. And when the perfect comes, love will still be there. And we will love as we've never loved. And we will experience what it is to be loved in a way that we've never known before. If you're a child of God, you have so much to look forward to. And one of the, one of the great connecting lines between now and then is love. So grow in it. Pursue it. Be sanctified more and more through the Spirit so that we love better. It's, it's love that best prepares us for the age to come. It's not your gifts. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not rolling on the floor. It's not great oratory. It's love that prepares us for that coming day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this stirring chapter and this wonderful section. And Father, we pray that you would help us to look forward to the right things, to long for the coming of the perfect, to see Jesus face to face. Father, we look forward to that day when we will know, even as we've been known. And so come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.